the title is Vulnerability and Aliveness. So I wrote down in my notes that the purpose of practice is to soften. But really, that's actually the pathway for the practice, is to soften. That's how we free our hearts and our minds, is through softening. Or as um, Anabdhuktin calls it, uh, to melt the ice mountains in our hearts. One yogi in a group today was talking about, I'm going to paraphrase this, and it might not be exact, it's how I heard it, um, was talking about how her, her, her practice, her heart is like the lake. Um, it's you know, starting to, sun shines on it, and it's starting to melt some, and then maybe it gets a little mushy. And, um, but then underneath, underneath all that ice, there's, there's life. There's life in the water and that the melting allows it to come to the surface and to show itself. And it's a great metaphor for practice because our hearts are like the lake. There's a lot of ice in there in the form of greed, hatred, and delusion. And yet the sun of awareness is softening that ice. It's getting a little mushy. It's slow. There's starts and stops. Things maybe melt a little bit, refreeze a little bit, and melt again. But the trajectory is there. We might even get a little wet. We might fall through the ice sometimes. <coughs> Yet all of life comes alive through this process. And one thing I've heard a lot in the meetings over these days is that it's a vulnerable process that we feel when the ice mountains start to melt. We feel a little shaky, a little vulnerable. And that that makes a lot of sense to me, right? The ice mountains protect the heart. And yet, and yet, behind that protection, it's so damn lonely. And so we risk, we risk melting a little bit so that we can be home on this planet, we can belong. I think not self is the deepest belonging. That's how I describe it. And um, so we risk, right? Because that's, that's our heart's deepest longing. So we start to surrender control as our refuge, because control is another word for the ice mountains. <laughs> for greed, hatred, and delusion, our control strategies, remember our protection strategies. And we start taking our refuge in curiosity, our capacity, our capacity to be with life and wonder. Somebody sent me a poem recently by Rosemary Watola Tromer called The Medicine of Surrender. The medicine of surrender comes with no spoonful of sugar, no promises, no backup plans, no returns, no insurance. The medicine of surrender never tastes the way you expect, never tastes the same next time, seldom has a hope for effect. And if there were some part of you that thought it might not be affected, that thought it might hold back, 
that part is most likely the first part to be flooded with the relentless truth of what is. Oh, surrender, the surest medicine that exists. There are infinite side effects. Wonder, freedom, rawness. It's like opening the dictionary to the word heaven or obliteration and knowing it's the same thing. It's like playing spin the bottle with life and you French kiss whatever you get. (laughs) It's the only remedy that can help you be whole. I'll repeat that line, gets you. (laughs) It's the only remedy that can make you be whole, the only real medicine there is. It is, isn't it? I'll get quite a bit. (laughs) It's kind of what we're doing. So so what we're trying to do with our practice is um, uh, melt our way to the freedom of the unobstructed heart and mind. So I sometimes like to use the expression, we're unbinding the heart and mind, unbinding from greed, hatred, and delusion. So we're freeing the heart of these um, binders that manifest as limitation, contraction, hardness, dullness, alienation. But the big question is, like, how do we do that, right? How do we free the heart-mind of these obstructions. So our usual way, let's say we're out walking, right? Our usual way is that um, we get caught in thinking about something. And then when we're thinking about something, when we're absorbed in the dramas of our mind, we don't feel the feet, or we don't feel the breeze, or hear the wind in the trees. So when we're wrapped up in our cognitive worlds, our contact with the environment is dulled. And this cocooning, this self-absorption, removes us from a connection with the world around us. We're less alive. But what we've been practicing, right, is to um, come in connection with the world around us, feeling our feet touching the earth, feeling the sun on our face, hearing the the distant traffic, right? This is is a way out, is this this coming into direct contact that we've been talking about over and over again. So this intimate contact with life, we feel it as more alive, but we also feel it as more vulnerable. We're penetrable. We can be touched by life. So as we land more fully in the present moment, we, we move closer to life, or you could say that life moves closer to us, and as we're more able to be touched by life, we feel the true condition of our intimate vulnerability with life both within and without. So vulnerability is a is the ability to be affected, to be touched, to be connected in an undefended manner. And I think of vulnerability as 
the courageous dance of the heart. It takes courage, right? The courageous dance of the heart that's willing to um, forego the protective cocoon of dullness and reactivity in favor of genuine engagement with this wild world. That's what we're doing when we're melting the ice mountains. We let ourselves be touched. We touch the world. We let the world touch us. So we come to meditation mostly I'm hoping for strategies that will help us control this wild world and our, our untamed hearts. And these are important. These are more of the active part of meditation that we've talked about. We, we find techniques that help us to manage the inner and outer turbulence and to find some peace. We learn how to rest with an anchor so that we might find some calm. We become more skilled in working with emotions mindfully, giving us confidence that we don't have to repress them or drown in them. We develop awareness of our impulses to act and learn how to pause, reflecting on the skillfulness of what we're going to do. We increase our ability to call forth kindness for ourselves and others. These are all super important. And they do have to do something with managing this world, right? So there's a place for managing this world. <laughs> These learnings give us confidence that we can um, face life as it is. We trust more our capacity. We have more faith that, that maybe we can melt the ice mountain, that we can soften. And so this trust grows moment by moment, day by day, year by year. We don't see it so much in one sitting, but, but over time we, 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 we see it grow and develop. And it really just develops from those moments of mindfulness, each drop of mindfulness that says, yes, I'm willing to be here for this. This is a huge blessing in our lives to have this kind of confidence. And it's important because it facilitates our ability to relax more and more deeply into reality, you could say. To relax the doing, going, and being. To relax the restlessness of life. But at some point, these strategies fail. You probably all had that point. <laughs> and that's actually a good place to enter more deeply into practice. Yes, we have found some techniques that help us manage our hearts and minds, but the world is still pretty wildly uncontrollable. The mind's kind of chaotic. No, it just goes this way, as it, this way and that way as it wishes. Emotions arise whether we want them to or not. Our body gets painful, it ages, gets sick. It's all so messy and wild and uncontrollable. Ungovernable. 
how you doing? <laughs> Meeting this truth, accepting this truth with an open heart is the ultimate strategy for the deepest peace. We accept that life is untamable. We don't throw out that first part, though. We don't throw out the techniques and that, you know, we have agency and that we can do things. No, we don't, we're not negating that part. But we're adding in, um, wow, this, this slow dawning on us that these ever-changing bodies and hearts and minds are just a bit wilder than we had assumed. And that we're contingent creatures, that we're fully embedded in this world, which means that um, we're vulnerable. We can be touched. We are touched moment by moment by the world. So we try to control, and we try to control, and we try to control, and we get frustrated because it doesn't work, and it doesn't work, and it doesn't work, right? We fail time and time again to get this body, heart, and mind to do what we want it to do. Peace seems far away. And yet this failing is necessary because it teaches us that we're looking in the wrong place. After failing often enough, we give up and surrender to what's happening. And we're surprised because it is the surrendering that brings us the taste of the peace that we've been looking for. So then we think, okay, well, I'll just surrender. This is good. I figured this out. (laughs) But we can't command surrendering either. It's ungovernable. So we keep kind of wearing out our control strategies, we keep melting that ice mountain. And we learn to surrender what somebody called giving up hope for a better present. But over time we learn the flavor of surrender. Which, if you don't like that word, it's another word for letting go, letting be. Personally, I kind of like the word, but if it's too much for you, just translate, letting go. (laughs) We learn the flavor of it. We learn um, almost viscerally in the body what letting go feels like, in the heart what letting go feels like. And we learn how to feel our way towards it. We, we start to remember how to walk that trail. Our hearts remember, oh yeah, the sweet relief of... Uh, Surrender. And it gets more willing to take the risk and it, and it trusts that it's okay. And for, for the most part, this willingness or this trust doesn't happen all at once, right? We surrender and then we see what happens and then we control and then maybe we let go again. This is how humans learn. None of it's a mistake.
This is from a book called Seeds for a Boundless Life by Zen, um, the late Blanche Hartman. If we're open to embracing the surprises as they arise, then there will be inconceivable joy. If we fuss and fume and say, this isn't what I expected, then there will be inconceivable misery. Just to welcome your life as it arrives moment after moment, to meet it as fully as you can, being as open to it as you can, being as ready for whatever arises as you can and meeting it wholeheartedly, this is renunciation. This is leaving behind all your preferences, all your ideas and notions and schemes, just meeting life as it is. How can we meet our life as it is wholeheartedly just like this? This is what our practice is. This is finding our home in the midst of homelessness right here. Finding our home. A number of years ago, I read um, about a performance artist. Maybe some of you have heard of her, Marina Abramovic. Abramovic. (laughs) Maria Abramovic. And she did this, uh, um, I guess you would call it a performance piece, (coughs) in a museum in New York City. And what she did is she sat for nine hours a day, six days a week. She sat in a chair without moving, And there was a chair in front of her, and anybody could come and sit in the chair in front of her. Nine hours a day, nine hours a day, six days a week, and I don't remember how many weeks it was, but it was it was a long time, like maybe a couple months or three months. I wish I looked it up, but it was a long time. I was thinking, wow, that's surrender, right? (laughs) You can. Just sit whatever comes and sits in front of you. And she would just look at whoever was in front of her. Wow, the, the courage and um, strength, right, to do that. So with, with, with this growing trust, this... Um, growing trust and willingness to surrender, we're actually learning to trust something much deeper than the logic and words of the cognitive mind. We're learning to trust some wider space, a, a huge compassionate awareness, you could say, beyond just our own wants, right? We're developing faith in something that's bigger than our own um, life. Or you could say we're learning to trust life. Or you could say we're, um, you could call it the unconditioned. Or you could call it Kuan Yin. Um, We're learning to trust what's behind the manifest. What could be called the formless, the unborn, the the non-conceptual world. So in this paradigm, we're gambling on something that has nothing to do with ourselves, that's bigger than ourselves. We're not trusting that terrible things won't happen because they will. Life is a shipwreck. Something's always coming at us that we have to deal with. I used to hope that if I was a hermit, that wouldn't be true, but I don't think so. (laughs) 
But in this wider space of trust, um, life is unfolding according to its own laws. And we surrender to that. I like to talk about exquisite vulnerability. The 17th century Japanese haiku master Basho wrote, simply trust, don't the petals fall down just like that. Rather than commanding the world, we receive it with trust and we're both startled and delighted by how different it looks than the world that we've been making up. The universe is so much more alive and unpredictable and refreshing than we had supposed. We can rest here in this world of incredible possibility. That's what I call exquisite vulnerability. And yet, Exquisite vulnerability is both deeply moving and it's also terrifying. So that's our quandary. The big question for the human heart is how do I stay open in this world, this ungovernable, unpredictable, unmanageable, wild, insecure world? It's a question some of you voiced directly and many of you kind of indirectly in our groups. It's a question that many of us are asking, especially during these times where things seem so much more troubled. Though I do ask myself often um, if it's any worse than it's ever been. I just read this book. It was about climate change over the last few billion years. This guy wasn't a climate denier at all, but, but he was talking about like all the different cycles that our Earth has gone through with um, you know, climate catastrophes. And his point basically was that whenever, wherever there was adaptability and flexibility, that's that's who <coughs> made it <laughs> in, in the next round. <laughs> but, you know, it's kind of fascinating to, 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 see, to feel that big picture, not to deny that right now we have a crisis and there's a lot of suffering and something should be done about it. But also there's this other bigger picture. Um, you know, at one point we were down to 15,000 humanoids on this planet. Now look what happened. Yeah, it's. And then I've been reading that these um, Chinese poets, uh, hermit poets. Um, wow, their poetry's like about you know. You, you read their poems like over you know forty years, and they're about war, like in war forty year war. I mean, they talk about like thirty forty year wars, and about you know. Uh, peasants saying, don't take my last son, he already killed off my first three, and things like this, and nobody having food. And, and so it's just kind of, um, I, I think the human realm's pretty challenging. <laughs> and, uh, and we're just, um, some of us are maybe opening more to that.
But how do we keep our hearts open? That's a really good question. I find that when, um, that often when my heart gets quiet, that there's a certain emotion that I feel that uh, we don't really have an English word for. But the Japanese do have a word for it, I think. It's called, um, my Japanese is not very good, <laughs> mano no awari, I think. That's how I'm going to pronounce it. I'm going to pronounce it like Spanish because that's my second <laughs> language. Um, but mano uh, no awari. And um, literally, I guess it means the pathos of all things or an empathy towards things, or a sensitivity to ephemera. A, a woman named Catherine Schultz in the book called Lost and Found describes it as a feeling of registering on the basis of some slight exposure our existential condition, how lovely life is and how fragile and how fleeting. It is made up of gratitude, Longing and a note I can only call anticipatory grief. We don't have a word for that. <laughs> or um, another translation or description, a transient, gentle sadness or wistfulness at the passing of things, as well as a longer, deeper, gentle sadness about this state being the reality of life. To know mano no awari is to discern the power and essence, not just of the moon and the cherry blossoms, but of every single thing existing in this world, and to be stirred by each of them. To be willing to be touched by all things. You can read kind of the tenderness, right, in these descriptions, which is um, the, the near neighbor of uh, compassion, of this caring. A tender, here it says, a tender, mournful feeling. Full presence in our vulnerability. Ryo Khan, the, the lovely Japanese hermit poet, says, Although from the beginning I knew the world is impermanent, not a moment passes when my sleeves are dry. There's a sweetness there. And yet, and yet, right? There's a tenderness. The Hmong, the Hmong people of Laos also have a word. It's ko siab. Again, I don't speak Hmong. <laughs> um, it's called, uh, it's to be emotionally moved from everything from overwhelming majesty to the loneliness of missing a partner who passed away. Again, it's that being touched by this life as it is. So on our way to um, 
surrender, it's not uncommon that we, that we pass through um, grieving. And grief, that's something that um, definitely the dominant culture does not condone. <laughs> you know, it, we're, we're scared of grief, basically. It looks like it might be some yawning void that's going to swallow us whole. We resist it. We, including me, we resist it. And I find that in these times, um, I need to grieve every once in a while or my heart gets stopped up. I know I, I often know I need to grieve because I feel stopped up and I get irritable and, um, and react and cynical. Oof. <laughs> Usually when I'm um, feeling cynical, it means my heart feels broken. Yeah, so I have to let the heart have some room to grieve. Like really, like large enough to let the heart grieve. And then on the other side of grief, I always find aliveness and joy and connection. And yet I don't go there easily. But I think it's just general housekeeping, heart keeping, heart housekeeping for these times is, is a, a little bit of grief here and there. And I feel, and I understand grief as a process of coming to surrender. It's part of the, it's how we come to surrender as humans. So, um, Very, very recently, like about an hour ago, <laughs> a student sent me a picture of a kitten that she had adopted, a seven-week-old seven kitten. And oh, just to clear the record, I like cats. I have two cats. There was some misunderstanding by a comment I made <laughs> that dogs are better at. Um, dogs are better at looking at you adorably. I think they are better at that. But cats are pretty good at that tattoo. It's, but they, they don't. But the, the adoring part, it's a, different, it's a different relationship. But anyway, she sent me this picture of this little gray kitty cat, you know, kind of looking up like this. And she said, he's so, uh, he's so tiny, spunky, and brave. So tiny read vulnerable, spunky, and brave. Maybe that's what equanimity looks like, spunky and brave. Maybe we have to find our own little spunky, brave kitten within. <laughs> if you've ever had a kitten, they're amazing. I mean, their energy. <laughs> we, we, we adopted a kitten two years ago. Named Iris. Her name is Iris Bonita. My husband wanted to call her Iris, and I wanted to call her Bonita. So her name is Iris Bonita. <laughs> and um, she's she was so tiny, and yet so brave. <laughs> she would take on her old cat, <laughs> but she just ditch around the house. Boom! You know, she'd have these you know fits where she would just. <laughs> 
climbed the walls and like, oh, this way and that way and everything. And um, she's so curious, you know, she wants to know everything and get into everything. And yeah, she's funky and brave. So maybe that's how we, part of how we, we, we surrender or face this world. with spunk and bravery. And so here we are, working out our freedom, right? Working out... um, Trying out. The the great thing about retreats is that there's a somewhat protected environment. So it's a good time for the heart to to try being a little bit more open, a little more in touch with life. And what we're, another way we could say this like melting process is we're learning to relax. Like relax more and more deeply. Like relax all parts of our being. Right? Somebody said in group today, like relaxing the, the hypervigilance. We kind of have a lot of hypervigilance um, hooked into our evolutionary conditioning. And yeah, you know, it's good in appropriate circumstances to be vigilant, but um, we kind of overdo it. Right, we're sitting here trying to solve something that's going to happen in a long time, you know, in the future when we're out of here and we're on, how, how is it going to, you know, that's hypervigilance, right? So we're trying to learn to cultivate, or to relax the hypervigilance in the mind and then the heart, and, and then the, we're trying to learn to let go in the body and to let go in the cells, all the way down to the cells. So, so we're, we're, we're seeing where there is this hardness like ice, right? And we're bringing the sun of awareness to those places. And we're seeing what awareness does. Awareness is doing most of the work, just so you know. <laughs> You're not doing a lot of it. You're just showing up. That's your work. <laughs> and, you know, having some intentionality. Yeah. But we bring awareness to these places that are hard. And over time, awareness softens. Softens the hardness. I don't know how that happens. It's mysterious. It's a mysterious process. And it can't be commanded, but it can be supported. So this unbinding, this unbinding of the places that are hard. And so you can see the spunk and bravery that's needed to turn towards what's hard. The places that are clenched, right? <laughs> but we can do it. <laughs> we are doing it, right? And we do it at a reasonable rate. 
as you know, we touch in, and then if something's too much, we move away, and that's wise and good. You know, sometimes we try to force the heart. It's like we go out on the lake and we take a pickaxe, right? And we're like, <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, get to the core of this. But that's not good because you might create a hole in the ice. And it's um, also we were talking in a group today that when we when we come at some place that's hard, like a, a pain, an emotion, an energetic pain, when we come at it um, with the intention to fix it. That's too much doing, and it doesn't like it. It gets defensive. Our hearts, for example, if we come at them with like, okay, time to open up, here we go. <laughs> the heart's like, wait a, wait a moment, wait, wait a little while here. Um, and what the heart really wants is you to listen. And what the pain really wants is you to listen, or us to listen. We listen and we, and we let... Um, we let life lead rather than imposing on top of it. It reminds me of a story I read. What was the book? It was um, Earth's Wild Music by Kathleen Dean Moore. And she was uh, teaching at a, at a, I think it was a, a national park. And the ranger got a little uncomfortable because she used the word love. And he's like, you know, could you like not use that word? It's like a little too much. We don't, you know, like we have all kinds of ideas about that word, right, in our culture. I like to use it and reclaim it for spiritual purposes. But I uh, said, you know, I, I'd rather you didn't use that word. And she said, well, what word should I use instead? And he, he thought for a long time and he said, how about listen to? Listen to. Wow, I just love that. So we're listening. We're listening to life as it manifests in this body. And that's a form of love. You could say then that it's love that melts the ice mountains. But we have to go against that um, habitual conditioning that Chaz was talking about yesterday to do, to do, to um, fix, to... And so we approach the hard places with listening, respect, Yeah, that's good enough. Listening and respect. That'll do it. <laughs> Love. Um, tenderness, quiet, curiosity. And then we, we let the kind of the wonder of life show itself to us. If it's a battle between you and your heart, your heart's going to win. <laughs> it knows how to hunker down if it needs to. 
So we don't want to get into that. We want to listen and respect. All right, I've told this story before. Some of you have heard this before, but I'm going to do it again. We're going to go back to the cats. We're going to give cats some air time. So um, I sometimes say that our heart is like a feral cat. Um, and if you've ever had a feral cat, uh, they run the show, not you. <laughs> and um, my husband and I many years ago adopted a feral cat from IMS, Insight Meditation Society. And uh, she never really tamed up. We called her, her, her name was La Ferosa, which means the ferocious one. <laughs> and, um, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't, uh, she had, she ran the show, you know, she let you, she's the one who determined how close you could get. But if you were patient and didn't push her, um, she would come to you. But it took a lot of patience. One time we went away out of town and, um, we set her all up in the garage with a cat door and food and all this stuff. Um, but she was gone when we came back. And then a few months later, our neighbors told us about the new cat in their woodshed. <laughs> so Lafayette lived out the rest of her life in, in our neighbor's woodshed. So then we adopted two more feral kitties but from IMS, but they were only like three or four weeks old. So La Ferosa had been six months old, mm -hmm. so a little old to tame her up. Um, but the three and four year old, the three and four month uh, week old kittens were um, the children of a feral cat at IMS. And so we brought them home. One we named Pearl, and the other one we named Sparky. And Pearl was tamer than um, La Ferosa, but she she still she. She wasn't sure about connection. She would do pass-bys. She would come to you, and then she'd like come closer, and then she'd swoop away. You know, she like she she was ambivalent about about connection. Um, but she kept growing her whole life. That's what I loved about. Uh, she died a couple years ago, a year before we got Iris Bonita, but. What I loved was she kept growing and learning and getting closer and closer. Like even at 12, 13 years old, she, she, she was learning. So sometimes our hearts are super protective, like La Ferosa, and we just have to listen to them and let them leave. Sometimes our hearts are like well, a little bit more willing to open and connect, but they're protective, and we have to be, you know, respect that too. And then um, Sparky. Sparky loves connection, no hesitation. Um, always been just a sweetheart. Uh, we keep thinking he's going to die, but he doesn't. <laughs> he's 18 now, <laughs> and um, uh, you know, every winter, we're like, is he going to make it through another winter? And um, recently, we got some medicine for him. I wish humans had this medicine. I don't know why we don't have this medicine. He had arthritis, so he was kind of creaky and. You could tell it was hard on him. Chronic pain's hard, right? So we give him the shot once a month, 
He's like turned into a kitten. <laughs> He's jumping around, you know, playing with the mouse toy and jumping off the couch. And I'd like to know about that arthritis medication. <laughs> but anyway, sometimes our hearts are just like that, right? And uh, that's wonderful too. But we respect our hearts, how, how they need to manifest. We don't demand that they... Um, open it on our time frame. So here we are, learning how to connect. Seeing our ambivalence to connection, respecting it, showing up again, listening, loving, And learning some kind of um, simplicity. It's the simplicity of that our happiness is never some other time. It's never some other place. It's right here, right now, with the conditions of life as they are right now. So we explore how we how we can learn the truth of that. So we're not trying to add anything. If anything, we're subtracting, and what we're subtracting is is the meddling, (laughs) the entanglement. We're dissolving what stands in the way of our natural openness and peace. So I'll end with another poem. And this one um, I will give a finder's um, credit to. Sometimes our Dharma teachers are like that. If a, if a Dharma teacher finds a good poem, you've got to give them finder's credit, right, Chaz? <laughs> so this, um, during the three-month retreat, Dara Williams read this poem. I like it a lot. It's called She, and I think Dara um, may have... Um, yeah, kind of um, edited it, did it some, some of it her own way. She Let Go by Sapphire Rose. She let go. She let go. Without a thought or a word, she let go. She let go of the fear. She let go of the judgments. She let go of the confluence of opinions swarming around her head. She let go of the committee of indecision within her. She let go of all the right reasons. Wholly and completely, without hesitation or worry, she just let go. She didn't ask anyone for advice. She didn't read a book on how to let go. She didn't search the scriptures. She just let go. She let go of all the memories that held her back. She let go of all the anxiety that kept her from moving forward. She let go of the planning and all the calculations about how to do it just right. She didn't promise to let go. She didn't journal about it. She didn't write the projected date in her day timer. She made no public announcement and put no ad in the paper. She didn't check the weather report or read her daily horoscope. She just let go. 
She didn't analyze whether she should let go. She didn't call her friends to discuss the matter. She didn't do a five-step spiritual mind treatment. She didn't call the prayer line. She didn't utter one word. She just let go. No one was around when it happened. There was no applause or congratulations. No one thanked her or praised her. No one noticed a thing. Like a leaf falling from a tree, she just let go. There was no effort. There was no struggle. It wasn't good and it wasn't bad. It was what it was and it is just that. In the space of letting go, she let it all be. A small smile came over her face. A light breeze blew through her, and the sun and moon shone forevermore. That's it for a minute. Oh, surrender, the surest medicine that exists. There are infinite side effects, wonder, freedom, rawness. It's like opening the dictionary to the word heaven or obliteration and knowing it's the same thing. It's like playing spin the bottle with life and you French kiss whatever you get. It's the only remedy that can help you be whole the only real medicine there is. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.